Welcome to The Grizzly Beat, a podcast of Grizzly Times and Louisa Wilcox, where we interview scientific experts, managers, Native Americans, writers, and others to share their knowledge, perspectives, and experience. This comes at a time of enormous interest in the grizzly bear's future as the government proposes to remove federal protections and citizens are asking important questions. We hope the information shared here will help listeners shape their own answers. So we're here today with actress, activist, uh, warrior for the underdog and the dispossessed, and Margie Kidder, uh, who has been at the Standing Rock protests uh, for the last number of weeks. She spent uh, a number of weeks actually there, and uh, I'm just here to ask her some questions about her experience. Uh, so Margie, you're back here um, getting healed from your uh, um, respiratory disease. And, uh, how are you feeling today? I'm feeling really great today, and actually I'm feeling homesick for Standing Rock. There's something so magical going on there, uh, and it's not simply the gathering of God, two or three hundred at this point tribes, which is an amazing thing in itself, and indigenous people from Bolivia and from Ecuador and from Hawaii and from all over the place, but there's also a sense of community and shared purpose. We're all fighting climate change in our own way. We're all fighting for water. We're all fighting these big oil corporations that are destroying our planet for our grandchildren, for me, for my grandchildren. So there's a shared purpose. And then there's this spiritual and emotional and literal sharing of you know, your tent, your food, your, you automatically share everything, your thoughts, your love, your hugs, uh, anything you have the other guy has. There's a utopian, uh, almost communist feeling, commun I can't say communist for American, socialist feeling in that camp that I don't think I've ever experienced in my adult life and I've experienced a lot so I'm now in this weird position of being in my nice house in Livingston, Montana with my wonderful friends all around going, I want to go back to that smoky tent with the stuff all over the floor and the dogs you know, and sit by that wood stove and choke on some more pine resin. I mean, there is something magical happening at that place that I right now miss. I can't wait to go back. It's very odd and something you can't really put your finger on. Well, Mark, you described um, seeing the crow arrive on horseback <sighs> and the Aztecs and the various tribes coming to lend their support to the Standing Rock to the Sioux as they uh, try to prevent this pipeline from being constructed under the, Elst under the Missouri River. Um, what was that like uh, when you watched uh, these tribal people riding into camp? Well, my first experience, this was my first, this was in early September, I believe, my first experience at Standing Rock. Um, and it was a much more peaceful place. The police had gone ballistic yet. Watching, I think the first nation I saw walk down what's called the Avenue of Flags. Now, there are flags from every indigenous nation you've ever heard of down a main thoroughfare. And what each tribe or nation was encouraged to do was come in their traditional dress with their traditional dances and traditional language and were greeted by everybody hooting and hollering as they came down the middle of this road, generally dancing or singing or drumming in their traditional way. When you see Blackfeet from Northern 
Montana in high feather headdresses and Hudson Bay coats. And then you see Hawaiians doing the hula down a dance. And then you see Aztecs who are, oh my God, those costumes are so magnificent. Big steel headdresses and uh, noisemakers on their legs doing wild dances coming down. Again, cheered by everyone. The most emotional part of it, however, was that many of these tribes had not spoken. The American wars against the Indians were so horribly genocidal and novel, had not spoken for 100 years. In particular, the Crow, who decided very early on when white guys came west, they would side with the white guys. And the other native bands did not appreciate that. So for example, as everyone knows, at the uh, Battle of the Little Bighorn, the Crow works with Custer as opposed to the Cheyenne against him. So all the natives hated the Crow. They were the white man's Indian. Right. The Crow came in from northern, from Montana on horseback in full regalia, greeted with hugs by the Lakota, Dakota, Nakota, Oglala, uh, all of these tribes who'd been their enemies, the Cheyenne in particular. Right. There was not a dry high in the camp. I mean, the weeping was extraordinary. This hadn't happened ever. Mm -hmm. And there was a total melding of these traditional enemies, a forgiveness of a lot of heavy-duty stuff, and a, again, this shared purpose to not just stop the pipeline going under because water is life, but to save the planet, let's get real, to end climate change, to do everything we can to protect the sacredness of not just the water, the earth, the sky, the trees. And it was about as powerful a thing as I've ever seen. I mean, those were not any lightweight tears. You're talking hundreds of plus, a hundred plus years of history healed at this place. There's something going on there that I can't describe. Yeah, one thing I noticed uh, was just the number of different races that um, of people that showed up. I mean, blacks and Asians and Hispanics, I mean, in addition to the tribal presence. And mm -hmm. there's a lot, I notice a lot of uh, sometimes tense communication, a little tense, mm -hmm. but, but an interesting um, purpose, a sense of purpose to really feel. Yeah, heal. common purpose will do a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. But what I learned, a lot of those black guys, in fact, had been when the when the um, Cherokee were chucked out of Georgia, all of the southern states, and sent on the Trail of Tears, they had merged often with blacks who'd either gotten their freedom and then were being hunted, or at, right after the Civil War, blacks who were thrown out and looking for somewhere for some freedom, and they had been adopted by Cherokee. So a lot of the black guys at that camp are, in fact, consider themselves Cherokee. I had no idea about any of this. Right. A lot of our cowboys were black. So then you would meet somebody you think is Filipino. Well, I met a couple of guys, they went, no, I'm I'm not Filipino like Chinese plus Japanese plus, I'm indigenous Filipino. That's why I'm here. So this rising up of indigenous people and their knowledge, the wealth and the wisdom of the knowledge of how to take care of the earth, which we white people have shit on, can I say that I'm your, sorry, yes. whatever, for so many hundreds of years and in the course of doing so have destroyed ourselves and our culture and our civilization, the rising up of these people all over the world and coming to Standing Rock, Sitting Bull's reservation, right. is just 
Amazing. I made friends with a woman from Bolivia the other day and we talked about the Altiplano and and then one of the teachers at the school where I'm helping out is a kid named Jose from Ecuador. I saw his first snow. Could not drive in it. God save me. Uh, and there, so there's, there are very proud indigenous peoples from everywhere um, and come I didn't tell you this when I saw you the second trip and the last night there I like to go to the sacred circle to hear the Indian drumming to go to sleep so I walk over and I hear and I'm going what's that it was aboriginals from Australia who'd been there for a month doing the didgeridoo or whatever it's called, which is a very haunting sound. I went, whoa, the Maori from New Zealand. The Inuit now are there from Nunavut in Canada. There's, there, there is a rising up of wisdom and love and sharing. You know, all the, they didn't have the individual as God the way we have in our white European screwed up minds in any of those indigenous cultures. They're there to teach us and we're there to learn. And it is not something anyone white has ever experienced in their white t- lifetime, nor anyone of color outside their small communities. Right. Well, it's amazing. It is amazing. Yeah. So what do you think, I mean, you lived through the 60s and the anti-war movement and the nuclear, um, right. you know, efforts to stop nuclear power from happening. <coughs> I mean, what do you think this pretends? Because this is sort of in a league, what's happening at Standing Rock, of some of the greater protests uh, that I've seen. Oh, I, I think even bigger. I, I mean, I think if you look at the civil rights movement, for example, remember in the, I guess, early 60s when that, Sheriff was it, and Selma turned the water hoses on the black people. Yeah. That was a turning point. White people had just gotten TV in America. Went, ooh, we're bad, mm-hmm. or some version thereof, mm-hmm. and had to look at themselves. And that was a huge turning point in the civil rights movement. When you go to Standing Rock, and you've got these North Dakota white police, and then you've got police from all over the place shooting at point blank range hard rubber bullets into people's faces and arms and wrecking their bodies and throwing tear glass canisters and hosing them and doing all arresting them for no reason, targeting the press, targeting medics, trying to get felonies put on them for doing nothing but praying and hundreds of cops. You've got a world watching this going, what's the matter with these white North Dakotans? And I don't think the white North Dakotans get that. Here's what they, nobody's getting. This is a goddamn Canadian pipeline. This is not an American pipeline. This is a foreign country getting poor white people in North Dakota to pay out of their taxes in these tiny little dirt poor towns for what they're calling security, which is in fact the worst advertisement for these pipelines in history. So the rich cats at Enbridge in Calgary, my other country, I'm afraid, um, are sitting there just screwing not just the native people with the pipeline under the Missouri River, which the white people didn't want in Bismarck, so they moved it down to the reservation, but screwing the white people by making them borrow, what was the last one two days ago, $10 billion for security. A town like Mandan can't pay that off. These are people who work in the grocery store, the dollar store. They're paying for a Canadian company and they don't know it. And you want to go wake up. This is not you versus native people. 
This is you versus a pipeline company, an oil industry that now owns the world. So the big question out of all of this is can the wisdom, the love, the caring, the unity of all of us and these indigenous peoples rising up together beat the most wealthy, powerful industry in the world that basically owns our governments. Little Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister Trudeau <laughs> in Canada. I'm sorry, I babysat him. Uh, he is now under so much pressure, even though he made all these campaign promises about climate change because the oil industry owns Canada. And so now he said, okay, last night, he said, okay, to one Enbridge 3 pipeline also going through North Dakota, which will destroy North Dakota, just like the fracking has done. Um, and he said, okay, to, what was the other pipeline? He said no to Northern Gateway. Gateway. He said no to Gateway, oh. yes to Enbridge and Enbridge 3, I think, were the ones. You know, this industry... With the banks that support the excavations for the extraction of natural resources, which is now becoming increasingly difficult in this, increasingly dangerous and increasingly destructive to the planet and putting more and more carbon in the atmosphere, um, they're backed by these big banks who, uh, so they're all in bed together, blind as bats, as my free friend Tantu Cardinal said, what's the matter? They've got coins for eyes. Oh. Isn't that the best? Coins for eyes. They don't think their kids are going to suffer from climate change. Right. So you have so many forces coming together, meeting for some with our hapless media here in the states, meeting except for the alternative media. That's you, Jeffrey. Uh, the, <laughs> meeting on this piece of earth, flat plain, owned by the. Army Corps of Engineers who have said they're not, you know, going to do anything dramatic. They've played it smart. Uh, and you have all of them coming together. What's going to happen? I have no idea. But if there was ever a chance in this planet's poor, sad, tragic history to redeem the pathetic human race, which is not as smart as my dog Jack over there, uh, or certainly the white part of the human race, it's now. If we white people listen to that wisdom, absorb it, if one oil company executive were smart, these are not the smartest, brightest bulbs in the box, he would go, wait a minute, I'm taking, say, Sunco or whatever, and we're, we're going to stop digging oil, and we're going to take all this money and put it in renewables. He would be the richest man on the planet yeah. because everybody like you and me and even Joe Blow working at the drugstore knows now that the planet is in serious, serious, serious trouble, as is the human race. We're approaching this extinction, and everybody knows it. So if one oil company did the right thing, mm -hmm. do you know how much money they make? That's a smart business move. What they're doing now, making everyone hate them and try and find ways to not use their product, is stupid. I mean, thinking they're going to push on people more of this crap bitumen out of the tar sands, the dirtiest oil in the world, the industry that puts more carbon in the atmosphere, contributes more to climate change than anything else is the tar sands of Canada, and they're pushing it down our throats. That's going to help them? No. So either a CEO will get shot, if I don't know how to shoot a gun, so they're in luck with me, um, 
or people will just find other ways to run from them. I mean, it's a losing game they're playing. Mm -hmm. Well, Mark, you've talked about... I'm sorry, I got right off. No, no, no. There. You've talked a lot about the role of uh, Canadian tar sands in mm. this uh, debate, and it's yeah. not talked about that much. I mean, the, most of the conventional wisdom is that this pipeline, by Energy Transfer Partners, is, is all about taking... Uh, um, oil from the Bakken down to uh, refineries in the Midwest, but you've actually identified a bigger problem and a more serious problem that actually uh, this is potentially um, the, the, the tipping point for a renewal of a pipeline or a building of a pipeline from the tar sands through North Dakota. Keystone too. Yeah. Enridge Pipelines out of Calgary. Canadian Pipeline Company, which has been stopped in Canada because of the Canadian Supreme Court rulings for First Nations people um, that have said over and over again, if you're going to put industry on First Nations land, not just reservations, traditional hunting fishing lands, you must have full consultation with and express consent of the tribes because they stole the tar sands from them. These rulings have come down recently. So they can't just go steal Indian land anymore like they used to. Mm -hmm. They got to bring the stuff down through the states that has no respect for Indian land at all, including in the courts. Mm -hmm. What happened was in last August, Enbridge Pipeline, who's been stopped now from going to the west coast of Canada, who've been stopped all over the place by First Nations peoples, who've really led the charge of Canada, uh, bought uh, energy partners, what's the other word in there? The Texas company. Oh. They're a limited... Uh, uh, liability corporation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, they bought them. Mm -hmm. Now, think about this. At that point, the Canadian dollar was at about 68 cents to the American dollar. Enbridge had been stopped at every turn in Canada. Enbridge was not stinking rich, and the price of oil was in the toilet. Mm -hmm. They actually just buy a multi-billion dollar corporation out of Texas, one of the biggest pipeline companies in the United States. Hello? So you go, no, that doesn't work. That doesn't make sense. Now, they bought some of it in stock exchanges, but still, you're talking a big loss on the dollar. Then you go, well, what can a Canadian company do that an American company can't? Besides, get this tar sands you can't refine it in Canada. You have to get it to Houston and one other refinery to refine this crap. If this pipeline goes down, if we manage to take it down, a Canadian company, under the terms of NAFTA, can sue the U.S. government for trillions of dollars in lost profits, and they will win because these international trade courts are made up of CEOs of companies. Mm -hmm. And so there's been a lot of suing back and forth for water, for this, for that. They're terrible trade agreements. So what can they do? Oh, we're going to pretend we want a little tiny pipeline having some fracked light sweet crude from the Bakken and go to some invisible destination. Mm -hmm. Not North Dakota. Right. Nobody in North Dakota is going to get a cent of this or any of it. We can buy this pipeline. It's inches from the Canadian border. And we're not going to use traditional size pipes that we use for light sweet crude, which is 16 inches in diameter. Mm -hmm. Light sweet crude is the consistency of maple syrup, right. but absolutely slippery, not sticky. Yeah. You can put it through your fingernail. I mean, you can put it through anything. Bitumen, on the other hand, is like sand and tar. Mm -hmm. You have to highly pressurize it to get the heat up. <laughs> I'm trying to learn the physics. In order to liquefy it even a little bit to push this sandy crud through 
of necessity 30 to 36 inch in diameter pipes. Mm -hmm. When I first went through North Dakota in September on my way to Standing Rock, the fields of all the farms that had been pushed into doing this by eminent domain, right. by a Canadian company mm -hmm. that they didn't realize, um, had these are huge pipes. Mm -hmm. These are not light sweet crude pipes. Mm -hmm. These are bitumen pipes. Mm -hmm. And anybody who'd done any studying could just look at the guy's yard and go, wait a minute. Yeah. You don't put that pipe in for light to recruit. You right. put a reinforced, right. but they're not really reinforced, which is why they spill every yeah. year, yeah. pipeline through. So you combine all these things, and you combine the track of this pipeline, and you go, wait, a Canadian, why would a Canadian company buy an American pipeline that just goes through North Dakota? It doesn't make any sense at all. Mm -hmm. Why would an American company with a very macho strut around CEO like Energy Partners in Texas, that Texan mm -hmm. oaf, why would they let themselves be bought out by a going broke Canadian company, not going broke, but losing money Canadian company, um, why would they do that? Oh. Because if we lose the pipeline, we can sue under NAFTA and pretend we're a Canadian company and get money for, talk yeah, about treason. Mm -hmm. It's a scam. It's a win-win situation for the oil companies. No. So it's either NAFTA they win or they get mm -hmm. the point of pipelines from the tar sands in Canada is not just to get it out of there. It's so they can expand the tar sands right. because as anyone knows about extraction industries, maybe you have to grow up in mining camps like I did. One of the big issues is how do we get the gold or the copper or the iron ore out of here to market? Right. That's the issue. Now, a pipeline company like, say, Dakota Access will say, well, we wanted a bigger pipe so we could have a higher volume of oil going through. Mm -hmm. Well, they have to frack that oil in the Bakken. Right. That is, there's not huge, huge, huge amounts that require that size of a pipeline. Right. Um, so it, it's everybody's got blinders on. In a weird way, uh, the Standing Rock camp is almost a sideshow. Mm -hmm. And yet they're playing it for keeps, boy, they're violent as can be. The, Native peoples in the states have not had 30 years of lawsuits against their own governments that they win, mm -hmm. like they have in Canada, because the American Supreme Court is politicized. Mm -hmm. In Canada, you can't politicize the Supreme Court. They pick their own guys. They're not having any politicians in there. Mm -hmm. um, so you have a different system, and they basically, you know, it's like the gold mine up here in Paradise Valley. That was a Canadian company. Why? Because they can't do it on Indian land at home anymore. Right. So they're going to come do it in Montana. Mm -hmm. So this, there's so many issues about this being Canadian, and that a Canadian company of that wealth would allow a town like Mandan, and this is where my heart goes out to those poor white racists, yeah. to pay for, if you've seen any of the actions, you're talking hundreds of police cars coming in all directions, mm -hmm. pinning people in, armored, and vehicle. armored vehicles, and, and militarized police who look like they're from outer space, they've got so much shit on them. I mean, that they would let those small towns pay for that? When it's their pipeline? I feel like screaming at people there. This is not even an American pipeline. 
Right. It's been bought by Enbridge. Now they're trying to shuffle things around, move the CEOs. It's a Canadian pipeline. It's designed to bring bitumen from the tar sands, and you can find all the documentation. Here's what I found out about researching stuff. You don't go to the anti thing. You go to the company's own website. Promotional. Did you know that? You go to their own website and you go, you wrote that on your website. Why did you write that we can now also are in a position to bring tar sands, bitumen yeah. down from the tar sands? You look really bad, but so that's where I find my information. Right. I find it right from them. Mm -hmm. And it's all there to be found. Mm -hmm. So the American attitude, even though the racism of the whites in North Dakota is horrifying against the native peoples, if they realized that they too were being scammed, I think that would change the dynamic of how they saw mm -hmm. the picture. Some people do believe it's just about putting a pipeline under the Missouri that could leak and ruin the water supply. It will leak. The first Enbridge pipeline across the United States dumped a million barrels into the Kalamazoo River and destroyed that forever yeah. and finally admitted they didn't know how to clean it up. That pipeline leaked 13 times in 12 months mm -hmm. because you put bitumen, which is like sand and corrosive, along and they're using cheap Indian steel, yeah. the side of a pipeline, you're pushing it at high pressure. Mm -hmm. You're saying, here, we're going to have a leak. Mm -hmm. So it will leak. It might not leak above Bismarck where the white people don't want it. It will certainly leak, and it will certainly destroy the economy, ultimately, of North Dakota, just as the fracking in eastern North Dakota will ultimately destroy that once it's had its boom and it's over. Right. It's wasteland. The water's all destroyed from fracking. So what they're doing in Canada with tar sands, bitumen, is they're open pit mining it. Right. That's why those pictures go on forever of ugliness you can't believe. What they're doing with oil in the bog, they're not drilling for it, they're fracking for it. It's shale. They push much needed water down in a water crisis and they and they frack it out. You can't get as much out as you can with a drill or as fast. You do not need a 36 inch pipe. <laughs> so you put all those pieces of information together, which I'm not doing well while I'm talking, but when I write it down, A, V, C, D, E, F, G, you can come to no other conclusion. But that this is a Canadian, let's get bitumen out of the tar sands to the refinery in Houston so we can ship it to China. Right. That's the whole deal. Right. Look at the course of this pipeline. Right. Yeah. right. And they have another one, Enbridge, that was okayed yesterday by Justin Trudeau, mm -hmm. uh, Enbridge 3, to bring bitumen down and they just say it outright. It's a little farther east right. that will go through the middle of North right. Dakota. Yeah. Who bought North Dakota? Right. And how? Right. The governor sold it? I don't know. Yeah. The state that the pipelines run through, that's what North Dakota's I, become. Yes, yeah. but I mean, how terrible, what a terrible thing to do to your population. Right, I know. I mean, I don't know who made those deals. I'll guarantee you the government of Canada knows about them. I doubt Mr. Trump knows, he's not quite as bright, but Hillary Clinton knew. Somebody, I mean, people in high places right. know these deals are made and that they're they're, we're not the same country. Americans tend to think of Canada as one big North Dakota, but it's not. 
-hmm. It's a separate country. So when they go, we're going to have energy depend independence. You go, Canadian oil is not American oil, and you don't get energy independence. Anyway, we have it already. Right, right. So, anyway, sorry, I'll shut up now. No, no. Um, I, I feel passionate about it. Yeah. I feel like so many people are being conned by this. Nobody has made a peep about it. I've told the Young Turks, I told CNN, I've talked to as many people as I can, huh. and nobody will write about it. Huh. I guess I have to. Yeah, I mean, the scale, I mean, the, the, what, exactly. yeah, the, the, the scale. The scale is, of what's being impacted, it's not just North Dakota or even the Missouri River, it's it's our whole Western way of life and... A whole global way of life. Yeah. The tar sands of Canada emit more carbon into the atmosphere than any other industrial product project on the planet. Mm -hmm. And they expand that, that's even more. We're already so far behind ameliorating these symptoms of climate change. Now, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're 20 years later than the event happens. It's, a, it's sinful. Right. And Americans don't know. They're all going, oh, DAPL, Dakota Access Pipeline, like someone in North Dakota owns it? Mm -hmm. Are you kidding? Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. I mean, which brings It's Sunoco, and they also own part of it, mm -hmm. and which is also a Canadian company and an American company who own part, a big part of the tar sands. Right. They are tar sands. Right. And it's uh, that... Texan, he's so offensive that I have a hard time with his energy partners, yeah. and and but Enbridge is call, Enbridge is calling the shots. Right. So, Margie, you get really worked up about. I'm sorry, yes, I do about the Canadian role in all of this, and and you are from Canada. So yeah. maybe you could talk a little bit about what it was like growing up around mining camps with lots of First Nations people around, and, and yeah. how that is connected to your current experience at Standing Rock. Boy, that's an interesting question. Um, that answer requires a lot of emotional honesty. When I was a kid, I'm 68 now, born in 48. I don't know how many people on the planet were aware that climate change was coming, that it was wrong to blow up the earth, which my dad did for a living. He was a mining engineer, explosives expert. So we would go... I was born in a town called Yellowknife, just south of the Arctic Circle. When I was born, there was one toilet in town. So this is the only toilet for a thousand miles. Huh. Edmonton was a thousand miles south. Flex with care. I was delivered by an Inuit woman, Eskimo, off in a Red Cross shack off a mine shaft. <laughs> that was all that was there. There were a lot of tents. We ended up, my mom finally got a caboose to have as a sort of house. Um, and then we spent, my childhood was spent in... Mining towns that were not yet mining towns, they just discovered oil, not oil, excuse me, one was iron ore, copper, they just discovered stuff and dad's job was to go in and figure out how to get it out, how to best blow it up right. and get it out. So generally, particularly for example in a place called Labrador City, inland Labrador way up in the north, there were, uh, we called them Indian kids, living in a couple of places I remember, traditional villages. And that was who you played with. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's who was there. We would do things that now I just horrified by. We'd go to Indian burial mines and dig up the bones with the Indian kids. I just go, oh my God. <laughs> we didn't know any different. So I got to grow up. I was really blessed in the wilderness. Literally, our backyard were the boreal forests. Mm. So now when I think of the destruction of the boreal forests, 
I could break down and sob at the drop of a hat. We had northern lights at night in the winter and snow for infinity and nature went on for infinity. You just looked north. Mm. And I think now of climate change and that that no longer exists, that reality. You can't just look north and know that after there's no civilization anymore. You go right to the North Pole and it's just the beauty of wilderness. That mm. that is not there anymore mm. breaks my heart on such a primal level, I can't tell you. And my Indian friends I grew up with, yeah. I don't didn't stay in touch with them, although as a young woman, I could never resist a handsome young brave, I'll tell you. And I had often thought, how come the Kidders have been in North America since 1648 and the Wilsons maybe 400 years and nobody slept with an Indian? So I did my best to make up that. But one woman can only do so much. Uh, and, and, but so my affinity for, and I don't know what name is politically correct right now, Aboriginal peoples, Indigenous peoples, I think we're going to all end up settling on Indigenous peoples, First Nations, Native It's There is a mindset that is very comfortable and loving to me and very familiar. Mm -hmm. um, so when I first came to the States and realized most white people never met an Indian, I thought, this is weird. Yeah. This is kind of strange. But it's the reality of here. So I go, now I'm at Standing Rock. And just a few days ago, and I'm in my tent, and we lived way in the north, so our blizzards were real blizzards, uh -huh. and I'm having an American version of a blizzard, which is a little milder, but it's a whiteout, and there's blowing, and I'm in the tent with a stove, and realizing this is what mommy was given when she was first married and pregnant, as her first house in the Northwest Territories with all the miners and tents, <coughs> and I went, I haven't felt this much at home and myself since I was 14 years old and my mother convinced my father to leave the north and take us to civilization in Vancouver. And I wept. I just sat in my tent and by myself, it was my, Alex was asleep, but I just lay there with tears coming down my eyes going, this is where I belong, I'm home. I finally, at 68, I'm home again. I don't know if that makes any sense no, or it's stupid, no. but it was so, and I wrote, that Facebook thing saying Johnny, I think only Johnny Tantu, Tantu Cardinal is a Canadian Cree actress who was born in Fort McMurray. Her village was bulldozed under for the tar sands. She went back to find it. She knows what it's like to grow up in the Canadian North in boreal forests with wilderness as your backyard. So I thought only two people will get why I'm writing this. Other people it turned out did. But it, it was a... It was a goosebump moment, and it was, God, at 68, I got to finally come home on this funny patch of Army Corps of Engineer land with all these tents and a lot of uh, Aboriginal people who've never seen snow before and driving their cars into snowbanks. Right. And me and this other Canadian Cree girl were hauling out with the chains. Yeah. But, yeah, I feel, I've, I don't know. It's, I think a lot of people feel they're supposed to be there. I think that experience of mine is much more common. Mm -hmm. I just happen to have had a childhood that doesn't exist anymore and was unusual in that regard. Mm -hmm. When you're born just out of the Arctic Circle, it's kind of weird. I think my brother was the first white kid and I was the third in the Northwest Territories. Oh. Well, there's nothing, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know. oh. So, um, it just feels right. It just feels so right to me. I have to be there. Right. And it's a, it's a beautiful community. In spite of 
the paranoia of the young warriors and the rifts between them and the elders and how far do we go and all the normal stuff you have of people and then the hippy dippy healers compared to a doctor or, you know people arriving just to take pictures and you're going go to work this is about sharing and taking care of each other guys in spite of those little rub the wrong ways there is something magnificent happening in that camp that I am Never seen, I don't think. Have you ever seen it in your lifetime? Yeah. You try and think back and you go, well, I've sort of thought about this, but yeah. wow. Yeah. Never went camping with 7,000 people before and had to share all our food and our heat and our bedding and our clothes and our everything and our hearts, mm -hmm. mostly our hearts. Mm -hmm. That's the best part. What is next for you? I mean, are you... No, no, I mean, I'm old. I mean, you know, one of the things... That's interesting also is that Aboriginal people don't, and indigenous people look up to their elders mm -hmm. and we don't here in the United States and you get to be 68 and your body starts to go which is a big shock mm -hmm. as somebody put on my Facebook page inside every old person is a young person going what the fuck happened and and I find I used to be really strong. Mm -hmm. I can't go out and snow and lift a car, you know, all the stuff you think you could do. Mm -hmm. So I lay in my bed upstairs after my first or second trip and I went, how can you help? This is a monumental global moment in history that will not come again. It might work, it might not. You got to contribute. Well, you're an old lady, you're not very good physically. I have no domestic gifts whatsoever. In fact, I have basically no life skills except I read. I read a lot. I've read more than anyone I know. So I went, hey, they need a library there. Mm -hmm. So, and it's got to be a Native American library. So I found some Native American writers who are heavyweights and fabulous, amazing writers who I've idolized for years mm -hmm. and, and, and helped facilitate a group of people who are starting a Native American library by Native American authors and about Native American history on Standing Rock at the school and our yurt is going up this coming week and I'm so excited I can't tell you and people have sent books from all over the country and I'm pleading for more books more books great books Vine Deloria uh, James Welch give me them all children's books mm -hmm. so it's for adults and for the school mm -hmm. and uh, and it gives me a lot of joy and then I go over and help out at the school and I love all those little munchkins because my grandkids grew up so so there's there's a stage of life where your contribution to something changes dramatically because of physical limitations. Right. I can't remember what your original question was. That, that was my question. What's next? What's next? Definitely. What's next is, I don't know. I mean, I could be dead in five years. Yeah. You know, we're of the generation where you suddenly go, oh, us baby boomers are going to die too. Mm. We weren't supposed to do that. <laughs> you know, yeah. I've had a year, as have you, uh -huh. of losing a lot of friends uh -huh. and a lot of associates, a lot of people I loved and worked with, just dropping like flies. Uh -huh. Two of Pierre's Trudeau's pallbearers died within a week, Castro and Leonard Cohen. His pallbearers were Jimmy Carter, Fidel Castro, Leonard Cohen, and then his two sons and somebody else. I mean, they're just dropping. Yeah. Fidel Castro's death, that's a yeah. blow to someone my age. Yeah. There's like, whoa, wow, that hurts. Yeah. Leonard Cohen, that hurts. Yeah. All these people, so you don't make long-term plans at 68. You go, where can I be useful? And the greatest gift 
in my life that I've been given this year is that somebody needed me. Mm. I could contribute something. I had a use. I can give something at that camp yeah. that is useful. Yeah. Boy, that, that, most 68-year-olds don't get that gift. Yeah. That's about as good as it gets. Yeah. yeah, and you have, there's a number of students, I mean, just young kids. Well, there's it's a family so affair at Canning Rock, so yes. there is really an opportunity for Dennis kids. Banks' granddaughter's there. She's, oh, she's such a rascal. <laughs> My little Shelby, I adore her. All that cool school kids got headlights, of course, so we got headlights. <laughs> but this is the next generation coming up. I feel passionate mm -hmm. that they learn their history. Mm -hmm. I feel as pass passionate as a Native American does. Mm -hmm. And the Native Americans working with me, and I have to follow their lead, this is not a white library, uh, recognize that as well. Right. Um, you know, there's nothing like reading to take your life steps farther and farther. So if we can get these kids reading and teaching them about their history and giving them the power back that they should have mm -hmm. as indigenous peoples who are a lot smarter than... What happened to white Europeans? Have you ever figured out what happened? <laughs> you got so collectively dumb? I did read an article in Scientific American two months ago that was somebody after Cro-Magnon Man, another man that we'd ignored, that only the white Europeans slept with. I don't know. Maybe that's why we've got these evil genes. But something went wrong with us. There's no question. So it's time these native kids grabbed the mantle, took their education to heart, mm -hmm. and took their wisdom and said, okay, back off now. We're going to take over again because you made a big mess. Yeah, I wonder what kind of leaders will emerge from the yeah. schools and we, that you will look back on or, or maybe yeah. well that says they got or my granddaughter. standing around. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's great excitement about these young rich kids. My granddaughter just started Harvard this year. Yeah. My baby, I can't believe it. Um... And they're all excited at Harvard, these kids, about Standing Rock. Huh. I know. I mean, it's, listen, it's on the front pages of papers of every, of newspapers in every country in the world, except the United States. We'll catch up. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Our media is owned. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, if you look at the drivel on CNN about it, it's just pathetic. Wesley Clark, however, mm -hmm. comes in two or three days to lead thousands of vets, and behind him, all the Native Americans and indigenous peoples from around the world, and behind them, as it should be, as white people who screwed up, right. up to the front lines. Right. To, and they're saying we're protecting people from the militarization of the police. The militarization of our police around the country cannot be under not estimated, uh, uh, understressed, mm -hmm. how this bizarre thing that's happened in the last 20 years of training our military to put down civil unrest, mm -hmm. almost as if they knew this stuff was going to happen, we'll just leave that. Um, so that someone with the stature of a five-star general right. who spoke out so eloquently against Iraq mm -hmm. is leading a many thousand strong contingents of vets in support of this movement tells you a lot because the army and the military know what Bernie Sanders knew, which is the greatest threat to our national security is climate change. Mm -hmm. It's not the Chinese or the Russians, for heaven's sake. I mean, that's just stupid. 
It is the challenge of our time. and uh, It's the only issue. Yeah. We won't be here in 100 years if we don't do something about it. Mm -hmm. My grandchildren will be living in a world where people are having war over a cup of water. Mm -hmm. I don't get to sit back and do nothing mm -hmm. in that reality because I was a baby boomer and had a great youth. Mm -hmm. You know, we had a good time. Mm -hmm. I have to get back now until okay. I die. Well, thank you, Margie. I'm You're welcome. To you. We're with Margie Shitter in Livingston, Montana, on her way back to Staying Rock. Yeah, who talks forever.